0: And today I'm speaking with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Jay is a professor of medicine as well as a professor of economics and in health research and policy at Stanford University. He has a MD as well as a PhD, but he has spent his career as a researcher. His expertise is primarily in the general area of infectious disease epidemiology and public health and public policy. Jay has been uh, very active in sort of discussing publicly uh, different aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic. So we talked about different aspects of the pandemic. I talked to him about how infectious, transmissible, and deadly COVID is and how our knowledge of those things has changed over time from the beginning to, of the pandemic to the present moment. We talked about things like natural immunity versus vaccine-induced immunity and whether or not the strength of your immune response will be different depending on if you've got one or both of those. We talked about the the mRNA vaccines that were developed for COVID, a little bit about how they work and how they were implemented. We talked about what we know in terms of, you know, whether or not these vaccines are preventing severe illness versus transmissibility and what that means. We talked about what's known today about any potential negative side effects from the vaccines. So we got into a short discussion about myocarditis rates in men versus women and younger versus older individuals. We talked about the evolution of novel COVID variants and how that plays into all of this. We talked about things like masking, what we knew about masking early on in the pandemic and what we know today, how effective really are cloth masks versus N95 masks, and what does all of that mean? And we got into a discussion around uh, the institution of science and free speech. Uh, Some of it centered around the fact that Jay was personally named in some of the recent Twitter files, information dumps that happened on Twitter. Uh, Jay's account was actually specifically suspended, not suspended, but suppressed in certain ways uh, over the last year or so so because of who he is and some of the stances he's taken with respect to COVID policy in the US. So his account was actually suppressed and his tweets were prevented from being uh, boosted in certain ways on Twitter. And so we, we talked about that. We talked about his recent trip to Twitter headquarters and what it was like meeting Elon Musk and what he thinks about him. We talked about the public perception of experts and scientific authorities at places like the NIH and the public health institutions of the U.S., the relationship between science and the public and what's been going on with the public's trust in science. So we talked about you know his sort of uh, bird's eye view of how he thought the U.S. handled the pandemic compared to other countries, what he thinks about lockdowns versus focused protection strategies for mitigating things like a, a viral pandemic like this, and all, all of those things topics obviously interrelate, and, and we got into all of them a fair amount. So if you're interested in, in COVID-19 and understanding you know whether or not our response to it was effective or could have been done better, the uh, understanding things like uh, how well or how poorly masks work at actually protecting you from transmission, and things related to the vaccines and what they do and what they don't do, this will be an interesting episode for you it's also interesting from the perspective of you know just thinking about issues like free speech and you know the public discussion and debates that people like to have around scientific issues as they relate to public policy specifically in the context of covid so we, we touch on all of those things as always if you enjoy the content i am producing here please like share and subscribe wherever you are listening or watching um this introduction will be on YouTube but the full episode will not go on to YouTube um, I had a previous previous discussion with the epidemiologist Martin Kulldorff actually pulled down for YouTube. They said it violated some of their policies, um, but they were not able to tell me specifically what piece of content inside of that conversation actually violated those policies, and I could not tell that anything did. So because we're talking about the subject, and for better or worse, because the subject, all of these subjects are, are fairly co- controversial, I decided not to put the full episode on YouTube, but there are links in the episode description where you can get access to the full audio and video versions. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Can you tell, uh, for people that don't, don't know you already, uh, a little bit about your scientific background and, and what you do?
1: Sure. Uh, I have a, uh, an MD and a PhD in economics uh, that I, I have been a professor in the School of Medicine, at Stanford for about, uh, like, since 2001. Um, and before that, I was a, 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 sci- a scientist at, at the RAND Corporation. Um, I, I've been studying infectious disease epidemiology and policy uh, since, like, 1998. Uh, my first papers were on, on um, HIV uh, and HIV policy. Um, I, I worked on you know, H1N1, published paper, peer review papers on H1N1 on antibiotic resistance, a whole bunch of papers. I, now I do a whole range of issues in addition to that, uh, but that's been a major threat of my work for, for most of my professional life. Um, I work also with the FDA on vaccine safety. I was one of the, uh, that helped set up their, uh, their system, the system called best to, to do epidemiologic surveillance studies of vaccine and biologic safety. Um, uh, so I, I have, I've had a lot of experience working in these areas for, uh, for over the last, uh, last couple of decades.
0: Interesting. And, you know, we're going to spend a lot of our time here talking about COVID related issues. Um, and so, You've obviously uh, thought a lot about this, and I want to kind of start out with some questions for people around what we know today and how our knowledge evolved in the past two years around how infectious, transmissible, and deadly COVID is across different cohorts of the population and, and based on immune status and things. So if we rewind the clock and go back to early pandemic days, 2020, 2021, what did we know at that time about how infectious, transmissible, and deadly this virus was, and how has our knowledge changed around that over the past couple of years?
1: Sure. So why don't we take those in, in turn? So first, first with with transmissibility, like how, how is the virus transmitted? I think in the early d- days of the pandemic, I don't think people really had any firm idea about that. There were pieces of evidence that had come out very early on that should have given indications that the disease was airborne, and that it, that it spread via aerosols. Uh, if, I remember there's very early on a report from a, I think it was a Chinese uh, restaurant, a restaurant in China, where one patron got it at one end of the restaurant, there was a fan blowing or something, and then some some, some patron, completely in another party on the other side of the restaurant, then got it also. Uh, so, I mean, that should have indicated that this the disease was airborne. I think part of what pe- the thinking was happening back then was that SARS one probably was spread more by fomites. Uh, it wasn't fomites, meaning you spread it by you know you 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 uh, you touch a surface that has it on has it on. I spit. The thing stops, stops on the surface. I touch. I touch my eyes, and now now I've got it. Um, SARS one wasn't particularly good at transmitting from human to human, um, so I think in the back of some people's heads, especially prominent uh, you know prominent prominent public health folks um, in places like the World Health Organization, they thought this might be like SARS one, that it didn't spread all that efficiently, and that and and you know you you looked at the Chinese example in January 2020 they did the dr- draconian lockdown in wuhan but it looked like the disease went away well if it's airborne it just spreads by aerosol how i mean how can that be it must be it must have been people thought and so so uh spread more by fomites or other uh, droplets or some other less less uh highly infectious kind of mechanism and so the the uh, the who i think famously put out a statement saying it's not not airborne um it was remarkable actually because it, it wasn't at all clear back then um, that that was the case. Uh, okay. So transmissibility. Uh, what do we know? Oh, what do we know now? We know it's airborne. We know, we absolutely know, hundred percent know now that it is, it is spread by, by uh, 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 aerosols. Aerosols you know, are like clouds. They stay in the air. They, they, they defy, it seems like they defy physics. You're not thinking too carefully about the physics of it. Um, they, they, so you have a vir- virions that'll sit in the room if I have COVID and I'm sitting in this room with very poor ventilation, it'll sit in the room for a long time, mm-hmm. and someone else could come in and get it. Yeah, you
0: breathe people. it
1: in. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the primary way it goes. It may still spread. I mean, it may have some spread by by droplets and and, uh, and and fomites, but I think that is not the primary mode of transmission.
0: And so, what about infectivity? Like, how infectious is this respiratory virus compared to you know other respiratory viruses that people may be familiar with?
1: So, if you have an unvaccinated population with measles, it's incredibly infectious. Um, you know, you're you're it's you you are in the presence of someone with measles for a short short period of time, and you can get it pretty quickly. Um, on the other hand, something like uh, it turns out like leprosy is not all that infectious. Uh, it you can be sitting in the same room with someone. With, uh, I, I did, when I was a medical student, I actually uh worked in in rural india in this in this clinic with, with treating hansen's disease uh they 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 had like a, every month they would come to the clinic and they would uh, uh they would uh, the, the, the they, meaning the patients with hansen's disease leprosy would come to the clinic and they would get uh, this you know, whole slew of antibiotics uh that that were you know, provided by the world health organization um and what the doctors who were you know, my preceptors were telling me is that i could sit in that room i was healthy young healthy i'm not going to get it uh they don't, they don't really know how it transmits, but it's it's you have to be in sustained contact in environments where it's not particularly sanitary for a long period of time in order for it to transmit. This is somewhere between measles and and that I'd say. Um, you you know my, my I, I got COVID in August of 2021, and my family di- I I didn't isolate with my family. My I didn't wear masks. I just I slept in the same bed with my wife. My kids were all around me. Um, and they didn't get covid i i think that you can get uh you now on the other hand omicron seems to be much more infectious um so that uh, less less uh, uh uh less time in the presence of someone breathing near someone with omicron is lot more likely to transmit um there's a there was a, some questions about like whether a viral load in the nose correlates with transmissibility and i think um I, I, I think the the, it's complicated, right? So for, for children, it seems like the literature suggests that if you have a high viral load in the nose, it's still children, are not particularly good at transmitting this disease for reasons we don't, at least I don't fully understand. I'm not even fully. I just don't understand. Uh, Children seem less, they're not, they're not uh, for for the same viral load, the same amount of time around a kid there. They they seem less likely to pass the disease on than an adult with it. Um, There there's a, uh, so, so trans- transmissibility, I think, has changed during the pandemic. Early on, less transmissible. Now, a lot more with the, with, with the Omicron variant.
0: So yeah, there's this interesting question around um, some age differences here. So, so there may be differences between the young and old in terms of how easily they're infected or transmit the disease. There's also, as many people know at this point, a huge difference in your susceptibility to getting severe COVID and, and dying from COVID depending on your age. How early in the pandemic were we aware of that, that age-dependent effect in terms of the deadly, deadliness specifically?
1: Uh, that was the, so the, the deadliness of the disease uh, the age gradient and the deadliness of the disease was apparent from the very earliest days of the pandemic. If you looked at the Chinese data, it was older people that were dying. If you looked at the Diamond Princess with, you know, that cruise ship that that went around with so many so many people infected, um, uh it was it was, it was the oldest people that were that that were dying. Uh, by the way, the Diamond Princess was interesting because there was no isolation possible in, in, in that, at, but only like 60-70% of the the ship got got the disease um so it wasn't it, you know it, it, the transmission there was a hint about transmissibility even there but in terms of who was dying from it it was it was the oldest people it was always has always been that um uh martin kulder fam- famously wrote a piece in um that he tried to get published just documenting from the uh i think from the chinese data uh the age gradient in mortality and uh he couldn't get it published he ended up putting it in his in his uh linkedin blog just to have a marker that people couldn't tell from early on in the pandemic that there was this age gradient um so we knew that from the earliest of the pandemic that uh that the highest risk people were older and the children were at very 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 low risk um that it's not that children can't get it and die from it that's obviously false they can't they can it's just that relative to other risks in their lives including other respiratory virus risks it's it's you know on that on that same order or lower
0: and you know i recall fairly early on in the pandemic you know there's a lot of uncertainty obviously people were were scared and anxious for all sorts of reasons but there was a, a, some controversy around this thing called the ifr and you know how how you know The infection fatality rate or ratio, and you know, some people were saying it was known, and it was one thing. Some people were saying it was unknown; we don't know what it is yet. And there were a range of opinions from different people out there and different organizations. What did we know early on, and what do we know today about what this number, this IFR, actually is for this virus?
1: Okay, so I actually played a pretty pretty prominent part role in that story, um, Nick. Because so so um, in March of 2020, I wrote a piece. In the Wall Street Journal, it was the first op-ed I ever wrote in my life. Um, uh, that uh, was with an analysis of data from the Diamond Princess and from uh, the NBA of all, all places. And uh, it, it, it just just to give some sense of what are the range of estimates that are possible for the infection fatality rate, and so just the audience knows that there's two distinct ideas uh, measures of fatality risk in, 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 in infectious disease epidemiology for this in this kind of context. Um, one is the case fatality rate, CFR. Case fatality rate has in its denominator it has the number of people who are who or who become cases. A case uh, in this case means you showed up at the doctor and, and the doctor diagnosed you with the thing or you show up in the hospitals, or you, you know, somehow show up in the morgue even, um, and they, they diagnosed you with the thing. Um, and the numerator then is the number of people died among the, among, uh, among the cases. The IFR is, is, has the same numerator, but it has, as denominator, it has all of the people that were infected, whether or not they showed up at the doctor, whether or not even they knew that they had the disease. Um, so the IFR, the denominator is much larger or potentially much larger, is larger than than, um, uh, than the, the CFR. The CFR then will will be a high range estimate, high estimate of the actual fatality risk. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, in order to show up in the CFR statistic, you have to still show up at the doctor. If you don't have, a, if you have a mild illness, you don't show up at the doctor, you don't get counted in the denominator. That's an overestimate of the risk for the the, the typical person getting infected. Um, in the early days of the pandemic the uh the CFR estimates that the World Health Organization put out was something like three four percent um and I remember seeing those estimates and I thought to myself because uh, that, that those those have to be overestimates um this is very highly transmissible uh there and uh if if it's true that there are many people who get this that aren't don't have very severe illness that there's a range of clinical presentations uh with the severe pneumonia being only at the tip of the iceberg, then, then we're really, that's a, that estimate is a is a bad overestimate of the actual risk. Um, this happened, by the way, it's not theoretical. It just happened with H1N1 in the 2009 epidemic. The early estimates of the CFR were like very high, three, four, 5%. Um, and people people were very scared about that. Um, what happened with H1N1 was there was a series of studies called seroprevalence studies, sero meaning blood, Pro- prevalence meaning the, how common it is in populations just, uh, to check what fraction of the population in different countries and different locations had antibodies that were specific to the H1N1 virus, flu virus, um, and then measure that the infection fatality rate rather than the, the case fatality rate. And in that case, what was what they found was that there were a hundred or more times infections than cases for every case that was identified there were 100 people floating around that had had the disease and didn't know it there was evidence of it because they had they had antibodies in their bloodstream and so the cfr though it was three, four, five percent early on um was actually the ifr turned out to be 0.01 percent, 99.99 survival rather than 97 survival an enormous difference and that basically defanged the h1n1 epidemic it went from this huge huge thing that everyone was like worried about although they didn't lock down then um to uh mu- much less worrisome and it sort of it it, it, it basically def- defanged the, the the worry around the, the the pandemic i had that same hypothesis i had the hypothesis in the early days of the pandemic what if this disease was more widespread than we knew and uh, so i wrote this op-ed in the wall street journal calling for a study a seroprevalence study to be done as rapidly as possible to measure the, uh, the, to measure the IFR.
0: How rapidly can those be done?
1: We did it in three weeks. <laughs> okay. So I, I, wrote the, I wrote the study, uh, I wrote the, wrote the op-ed in, in March of 2020, I think it was March 20th, 20, 20, 20, uh, 2020, 24th, 2020. And by April 4th, we were in the field measuring antibody rates in Santa Clara County. The week after that, we were in the field measuring antibody rates in LA County with a sister study. Um, uh, I actually was surprised that it fell to, to me and my groups to do this. I thought that the CDC would do these studies. Just naturally, but, they would have been doing them already. Yeah. Uh, so so I, this is why the, one of the reasons I wrote that op-ed is because I was surprised that the CDC had not already done the study. We were in the middle of a lockdown. They'd done this lockdown without knowing how widespread the disease was. It shocked me. Um, it was a basic piece of information that we needed to know to make good decisions. And it's not that complicated or hard to run these studies. Um, uh, so I, uh, in that, in, in sense, especially if you have the resources of the CDC. So, uh, so I, so I, I, we ran this study and we found was that in, in Santa Clara County, there's something like 40 or 50 times more infections than cases that, uh, when you adjust for the fact that there's a a lag in, in, like when you get the disease from when you die from it, um, that that the infection fatality rate was actually something like 0.2%, 99.8% survival. Now, we were doing this in the middle of a lockdown. So there were some limitations in the study. Um, the most important one is that we weren't allowed to go measure seroprevalence in nursing homes. So we were doing a community study, not nursing homes. Of course, nursing homes were where most of the deaths were. Um uh, and so we didn't have a visibility into that. So the 0.2% is the infection fatality rate in the community at large. It's likely higher in nursing homes. Um, the second thing that limitation is we, uh, the sampling scheme we used was a Facebook sampling scheme. We contacted people randomly by Facebook and asked them to participate in the study. This biased the study toward people who were who in the higher income places inside Santa Clara County. Higher income places were better protected because there's more laptop class folks, less exposure. Lower income places like South San Jose, we had less, uh, fewer people sign up, and so we were biased in the direction of finding people that were higher income and thus lower infection fatality rate. We biased toward it because of that sampling bias. Uh, we did a uh, we did an adjustment to try to fix that uh, you know, based on the demographics of where people signed up. Um, so our estimate that 0.2 percent is representative of the of the distribution of population within the county based on the the demographics mm-hmm. um uh, but you know it's it's never as good as if you actually have a representative sample directly yep. without well, doing so, the well,
0: well so you know anyways you guys did that study at that time and you get the number that you got what uh, how does that number compare to what we know today what the IFR is
1: so there was now a hundred or more of these studies that were done, especially in 2020, they, were, they seemed like we were doing all the time. Um, the the median IFR worldwide, according to a a meta-analysis by John Ioannidis is something very close to the number we found. It was like 0.27, something like that. So, you know, 0.2, 0.3%, um, which means 99.8 to 99.7% survival. Um, younger countries have lower IFR average which is not surprising. This disease is much more uh, damaging to old people. Um, the older people, older countries have a higher IFR. Some places have, especially if they were hit early uh, in 2020, had a higher IFR. So New York had a higher IFR than some other places. Um, not not representative of the, wor- the world at large. Um, but the median among the estimates was something like 0.3 percent, 0.2 percent. Just Point. just exactly what we found in the in that first study for okay. 2020.
0: Point so two, point three percent How does that compare to another virus that people are maybe familiar with uh, you know th- like a flu virus on a typical year or something like that.
1: So you know we don't do have ex- excellent IFR data for flus because we don't do these kind of surveillance as routinely but the estimate for the flu people would say was something like 0.1%. Um, So it's two two times. But on the other hand, the the one flu that we did have an excellent estimate for, this H1N1 flu, it was 0.01%. So maybe it's 20 times more, maybe maybe it's 20 times worse. Ebola, we don't have an IFR, but it would, you know, 30, 40%. I mean, very, very, very high infection fatality rate, I think. Um, uh, So this is is worse than the flu, absolutely, uh, but nowhere near in the range of something like Ebola.
0: I see. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's a good way to think about it, I think. And, you know, another question here around, you know, how serious the illness can be, um, is how bad it is as a function of your immune status. So there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of discussion and, and back and forth on this. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between natural immunity and versus people who have, mRNA vaccination versus people that have both, you know, one or both or neither of those. How do things like the deadliness and the transmissibility uh, change as a function of your immune status?
1: Okay, so first, first of all, I think the key thing is we don't have a, a we don't have great data on any of of, of the, the the mRNA vaccines regarding transmissibility uh, and, and so on. Uh, the, because the randomized trials were like a very short duration, maybe two or three months, um, and many of the and the for instance the the Pfizer trial didn't check for transmissibility, uh, didn't check to see if it protected against transmissibility. They had as at its endpoint the prevention of symptomatic infection, which which d- didn't include for instance people who had asymptomatic infection, right? So that was the primary endpoint um the uh but so so most of what we know is based on both for by the way this is also for natural immunity uh but based on epidemiologic data where there's matched cohorts of people that tracked over time match meanings like people who had covid and not not had covid tracked over time uh people who had the vaccine didn't have the vaccine tracked over time observationally not randomly assigned to each each group I, i don't know how you randomly assign covid status i have no idea um okay so so um Based on that, based on the best studies of that coming out of places like Qatar, Sweden, Denmark, uh, 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 Kaiser Northern California, a few other places, um, what what what's very clear is that if you had the disease and recovered, Israel, if you had the disease and recovered, you have better protection against reinfection than if you just had the vaccine. The vaccine, the protection against infection. Last for a short period of time maybe two three four months after three or four months the 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 vaccine efficacy against infection especially in in the during the delta wave uh dropped pretty pretty precipitously i think it's even worse during the omic during omicron um and so that means that if you have the vaccine it's very common to get reinfected to, to be infected again infected so i got the i was vaccinated in april 2021 got infected in August 2021 that is a very typical outcome four months after you get the vaccine you can get you're, you're, you're again susceptible to infection um the mechanism is not clear but it may be that there's there's fewer antibodies your antibody production wanes as a, over time and fairly rapidly um on the other hand uh so so the so not uh, and if you look at data from uh places that that, 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 that track patients who were who were infected at, uh over a long period of time, the reinfection rate seems to be about 0.3, 0.4%. There's data out of of Italy, a a whole bunch of places that have tracked people over time that are infected and recovered. So you have very strong reinfection protection if you were infected and recovered. When there's a new variant, the variants evade the ability to protect against reinfection for both natural immunity and the vaccine. And so a lot of people who were uh, infected and recovered before Omicron got got infected again at, during Omicron. Same thing with the vaccines. A lot of people who got the vaccines in April of 2021, like me, could get Omicron. In fact, I did. I got Omicron uh, Omicron in like uh, a few months, a couple months ago. Um, after having had the sort of the Delta variant in, in 2021, I had Omicron in 2022. I had the vaccine and, re- and reinfection, and yet I still got Omicron, right? Um, so- none of these mechanisms provide guaranteed protection against reinfection certainly not permanent protection against reinfection or infection at all we do not have any mechanism to guarantee that it's like it's like the other coronaviruses you've got the other coronaviruses when you were little almost certainly and then you've got it again and again and again just you can get reinfected especially as new variants pop up what we have seen though and this is that's the bad news Nick the good news is the reinfection or infection after the first time you got uh, you're vaccinated is less likely to produce um it's less likely to produce death or hospitalizations than the first time you're infected or, or or if you are unvaccinated and you get the disease. So the vaccines and infection and COVID recovery both provide protection against bad outcomes if you when you are reinfected.
0: I see. So even if you get reinfected with a new variant, so the new variants can um, escape the immunity that you get from having a prior natural infection or escape the uh, immune modulations you've gotten from getting an mRNA vaccine, so you can still get reinfected. But even if it's a reinfection with a new variant, your chances of getting severe illness that requires hospitalization is lower, whether or not it's an mRNA vaccine-induced or a natural-induced immunity.
1: Yeah, that that seems to be clear from the from the epidemiological data. Not not so much from the randomized trials. The randomized trials actually didn't show that about the MRNAs. The, the randomized trials actually had no statistically significant difference in the mortality risk from infection for the placebo versus the the uh, the vaccinated group. Uh, in fact, it was slightly higher in the vaccinated group for the all cause mortality. Um, so yeah, but but I think that but the but the data that came out of the the epidemiological studies afterwards show exactly what you just said, Nick.
0: And do do we know, so let's say um, you get reinfected, one person gets reinfected and they have not had COVID before. They have had at least two doses of the mRNA vaccines. Another set of people gets infected and, and they've had uh, a natural infection previously is the immune response from each group of people going to be comparable or is it going to differ in any way are there, are, are is each group going to produce, produce a different set of antibodies and cellular immune responses what do we know and what do we expect there in terms of similarity and difference
1: so that literature is still developing so that you know there, it sometimes goes under the name of original antigenic sin or it's not exactly oas but like that's what people sometimes call it um i mean that or, or like you're, you're essentially the idea is that your immune system is trained by the initial exposure to the antigen that you see the version of the antigen you see so if you saw uh, omicron first your immune system is sort of primed to deal with omicron like spike proteins or or whatever um, whereas, whereas, if you saw the vaccine, the original vaccine, which is based basically Wuhan, the the Wuhan version of the spike protein, um, then you're trained to deal with that. Um, and there is some evidence that that's true. Uh, I, I haven't decided yet. I don't think that literature, at least up to my satisfaction, is, is ripe enough to, for me to say with any certainty one way or the other about that. Um, and and, and uh, I do. I do. I, I don't think. I've seen the epidemiological data anything that convinces me to worry so much about that because people who had covid before and recovered with delta they're less likely to die from omicron than someone who was completely immune naive for get, holding other things fixed um which means that uh, the uh, and and, and, the, and you had the vaccine the again the Wuhan A vaccine essentially um the Wuhan vaccine, the, the 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 vaccine trained on the Wuhan spike var, var, variant, um, and that seems to provide good protection against severe disease, even against other variants. So the key thing to me uh, is not the, I mean I, I think a lot of people get mixed up on this because they're like thinking about infection blocking. There may be OAS around infection blocking again. I haven't fully decided this, um, but. The 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 key thing to me is: Does it provide protection? Does does provide prior immunity either by the vaccine or by or by COVID recovery provide current protection against severe disease, even against new variants? Seems like it does. And that may wane over time. I don't know. I, I don't. I'm not certain. I think the, the 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 people who've had hybrid immunity, who've had the vaccine and then recovered, or vice versa, or or, or in the other order, either way, seems to have pretty good protection. Against when they're reinfected, severe disease. Uh, I mean, and so like you know, I I think if I had to rank, probably like hybrid immunity, straight natural immunity from from COVID recovery, and then straight vaccine immunity in terms of like protection against severe disease. But is they're all really close. Um, I so the marginal benefit of say getting vaccinated after you've covered recovered is, is small relative to if you have the marginal benefit You're entirely immune naive.
0: Mm-hmm. And so how does, so the fact that the mRNA vaccines, they contain mRNA for the spike protein of the virus specifically, how does that start to factor into some of this in terms of uh, uh, the, the magnitude of the immune response that the vaccines are going to induce? And does this play into uh, in any way, the evolution of new variants and how they evolve?
1: Okay, so now we're getting by an area that's outside of exactly my expertise. So, so please forgive if the audience is listening. Please forgive me. This is now my my totally ignorant understanding of it. But I'll just get. I'll, I'll, since you asked, I'll try to tell you what I think. Um, um, so, I, I think um, the uh, the 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 spike protein that's the that's the epitopes that you get if you are uh, vaccinated. Of course, the the virus itself has many other proteins. Um, including this N protein, which is, which is, uh, which induces a response when you, uh, when you're, when you're infected. There is some literature suggests that the, that the antibodies to the N protein, let's say you're vaccinated and then you're infected. The antibodies you get to the N protein and the the, 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 the immune training you get to the N protein from that infection is less uh, sort of imprinted than if you, if you just got, covid first without the vaccine you get covid first without the vaccine you get a broad range of responses to the s protein the n protein a whole, a whole just a whole whole shebang right whereas if you got the vaccine first just the spike protein protect you know you're primed for the spike protein you get the whole vaccine then uh, you whole, whole virus then and the n protein response is less less uh pronounced if you uh if you if you if you have it in that order i don't think I think that's true but I don't think that I've seen any evidence that's convinced me that that leads to let's say you' now a third inf- another infection that you're going to be more likely to die if it's a result of it you still have protected pretty well against severe disease even even if you got the vaccine first then the disease um so I just I saw I I, I don't know the upshot of that of that, uh, of the, of, of the, of that other, uh, epidemiologically, other than to say, I don't see anything in the data that, that particularly concerns me about it.
0: I see. So, so I guess to summarize this whole part, in your view, vaccine induced immunity and natural immunity are comparable. There might be minor differences, but they're comparable in terms of their ability to protect you against severe illness. But in either case, they're not, they're probably not going to protect you against transmission in the future against a new variant.
1: Correct. Um, now you asked me about evolution now now we're really far afield Nick. So just just so, again, so like again, uh, this is I, it's, it's fun for me to think about stuff outside of my field, but it's the, it, I'm happy to be corrected on this. Um, but let me just say I, I, I think um, that we have a, uh, a very different uh, ecological environment for this virus now than we once did in March of 2020. Uh, it, we now have a very large fraction of the population that's been infected. There was a recent estimate out of out of Harvard and Stanford suggesting like 94 percent of the population has been infected and recovered in the United States. That's probably true in, in like in India, I know that that was true very early even early on. There was like there were a very large fraction uh, by 2020 well 2021 um, uh, was was infected and recovered. So you have a, you have a very different environment that this that virus is facing. And the uh, now there's a mix of vaccine uh, folks who've had the vaccine and and also COVID recovered. Um, the virus, I think, the evolutionary pressure then on the virus is has been to produce uh, produce mutations that evade that immunity. The virus wants to replicate. It wants to like it wants to it wants to survive. If it's if it's so and the way it can do so is by evading that immunity, evading the 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 antibodies that neutralize it. And I think Omicron is an example of that. I think that that it evades evades the immunity provided by the the vaccines, the Wuhan based spike vaccines, and the prior, prior immunity from from COVID recovery. Um, it doesn't seem to be evolving in a direction of producing more severe disease, or in any case, our 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 immune response to it is such that. Uh, that uh, if we remember how to cope with it, we don't, and, and, you know, it makes some sense, right. Cause like, I think a lot of the issues with clinically with the virus is that you overreact to it. A lot of the, a lot of the, the worst outcomes, you know, the, the, the severe viral pneumonia was, it was an immune overreaction. Um, now there, there are some other, other things that you can, you, that can happen to you if you get the virus, um, you know, clotting issues or, you know, same thing with the vaccines, you get, you get myocarditis, Um, and, and, and other, other things. I don't think those are like, I think those are just, uh, uh, essentially like they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not, not, they don't actually help the virus replicate. They don't help a virus. There's no pressure, evolutionary pressure to make the virus react in that way. It's just an unfortunate thing that the virus does that to some people. Um, I don't view that as like evolutionarily important in that, in, in that sense, it's just clinically important. Um, the key evolutionary thing to me is the pressure to evade immunity, because if the virus didn't do that, didn't ev- evolve in that way, it would die out. Um, in that sense, I think it's very similar to the other coronaviruses. The other coronaviruses also have their mRNA viruses. Uh, I'm sorry, their RNA viruses, they they, they evolve, they, they mutate a lot. Mm-hmm. That's their, unlike DNA viruses, which mutate less. Um, and uh, there's less error checking. There's just it, there's going to be a lot of mutation, um, as we, as there is with the other other coronavirus, human coronaviruses, and other coronaviruses um, that float around. Um, the The question is, what is selected for? I think what's selected for is immune evasion, not deadliness. I
0: see. So you know, one of the things you know, I remember back when the mRNA vaccines were first coming out. You know, many people like me at that time were really excited and impressed by this technology, uh, in particular around the programmability of mRNA vaccines as opposed to tr- traditional vaccines and their potential for you know rapid development and iteration. If a, a new variant comes out or whatever, a new virus you know starts spreading through the population you can you know practically overnight go in and change the sequence in the mrna contained within the vaccines and you know that that was in a, a very uh, important strength of this new technology and some of the initial clinical results were also seemed to be very compelling at least uh what we thought they were but you know in retrospect there some of it seemed a bit confusing so you know early days uh you know, people like Anthony Fauci were saying things like, you know, quote, when people are vaccinated, they're not going to get infected. Um, A now sort of famous viral tweet from the CEO of Pfizer, you know, said, quote, excited to share the updated analysis from our phase three study with BioNTech also showed that our COVID-19 vaccine was 100% effective in preventing COVID-19 in South Africa, 100% exclamation point. So at that time, when those statements were being made, were they mistaken? Were they not thinking about new variants? Uh, what, what exactly were they measuring um, You know, in the case of uh, the Pfizer-BioNTech studies when, when they were coming out with those statements? And, and what was your reaction to them at the time and now?
1: So, um, I mean, I played very close attention to the trials that were published in like the New England Journal and other, other places for, for both Moderna and, Va- and Pfizer. let focus on the Pfizer. Um, in fact, both, it's true for Moderna too. The, the, the primary endpoint was prevention of severe, of, of symptomatic infection. And they tracked patients for two or three months. So, in December of 2020, what we knew is that the vaccines, after after, let's say, after two weeks after you're fully vaccinated, um, would protect very strongly against symptomatic infections for a short while that we knew.' We, there's, what we, what didn't we know? We, we didn't know would that protection last for long? Mm. We didn't know uh, whether would protect against severe disease. As I said, the, the all cause mortality actually was was higher uh, ultimately in the in the, in the in the in the vaccine group than in the placebo group in the in the randomized trials for Pfizer. Um, not 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 statistically significantly different. Just, I mean, there was like fifteen versus. There was no there was no convincing evidence that it protected against all cause mortality. Um, it wasn't powered for that, so you know, I wasn't so worried about that. Um, and then um, and then we didn't know if it prevented infections and transmissions. Given all of that uncertainty, what I my reaction to this was: we should definitely be using the vaccines for focused protection of vulnerable older people. It seems likely if it protected against symptomatic disease, it probably also protected against de- death from COVID. Um, and uh, we knew that the mortality risk was so much higher in older people than in young people. And so it was vital to get the vaccines uh, to older, make it available to every old older person on the face of the earth. And you could pick a cutoff date, uh 65. 60, whatever you like, but depending on the vaccine supply. But it was, was the vital thing was to make sure older people got it. For younger people, it was much less much less important. The prevention of symptomatic infection is not, is not that important an endpoint for a disease that produces a very, 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 very low infection fatality rate, which is true for young people. So I wrote an op-ed with Sunetra Gupta in, in December 2020, arguing for using the vaccines for focus protection of older people. The the the, the um, uh, CDC and uh, people like Tony Fauci, they had a very different approach to to this evidence. They they looked at this evidence and they hoped that it would stop transmission, not on the basis of what was there in the evidence, but on the basis of of their hope. Uh, there was, I guess, I guess that what the Pfizer uh, CEO was reacting to was a small study in in South Africa that that looked at transmission. But it was again, it was a short period of time. Um, and they wanted to be and you could see it in the language they used. They would say, "Look, uh, we need to use this vaccine to stop transmission and achieve herd immunity." By that, what they meant was essentially permanent protection against getting and spreading the disease. But they didn't actually have evidence that 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 could, that the vaccines could do that at that point. Um, they just hoped that it would. And so the strategy they adopted was essentially universal mass vaccination with the vaccine, rather than using the vaccines for focused protection of older people. That then led to calls for uh, vaccine mandates, pressure on people, social ostracization of people that chose not to get the vaccine. It led to a whole host of I think, incredibly damaging policies, not based on hard scientific data, but rather on a hope that the vaccines would do something that it turned out, in retrospect, the vaccines didn't actually do.
0: I see. and But it sounds like at the time a lot of those statements were made, the evidence that we had what wasn't necessarily ruling out that the vaccines uh, could prevent transmission, but didn't demonstrate that. And we just hoped that was going to be true so much that people just sort of ran with it.
1: That's exactly what I think happened, right? They, they thought that, um, that if it prevented symptomatic infections for nine, uh, for three months or two months, that provides enough basis for, for, for saying very strongly, I think overstating really that, uh, that the vaccine would stop transmission. In fact, they blurred that distinction in the minds of the public.
0: Interesting. And, you know, around the mRNA vaccines, you know, uh, you know, especially because this is a new kind of technology. It's a different kind of vaccine than people have have used historically. Um, they just they just work in a fundamentally different way. You know, there's questions about um, the potential long term consequences of these vaccines. You know, uh, there's there's the question of how long does the immunity last, and we've already talked about that a little bit. Then there's the question of are there any. You know, big or little potential negative side effects to these things. And obviously, this has also been an area of controversy. You know, on the one hand, we had to move very, very fast early on. And, you know, you you don't have time to do a multi year long term study in the midst of a rapidly evolving pandemic like we've been living through. Um, On the other hand, this is new technology and some time has passed. So, uh, what do we know today? about any potential negative side effects that might come from these vaccines in particular what do we know about that in terms of how it might vary across different age and sex
1: cohorts okay so excellent can I, can I take that in two parts because you have yeah. your preface is super interesting about about uncertainty and what you do within the midst of a pandemic I think that's a really important point to think about uh, is, and remind me if I don't get to the second part because that's also very important mm-hmm. um, uh, so the the uncertainty, how do you manage that in the, in the midst of a pandemic? We don't, you don't, you, you can't expect like, you know, it's, it's funny. Like what in, in polio for polio in 1954, Jonas Salk and the March of dimes folks ran a study of a, a randomized control study of 1.8 million children in the middle of a deadly pandemic. And they waited and saw what the results were. It took them a year and uh, that, that, that led to the the mass adoption of the, the, the salt polio vaccine. Um, later there were like, you know, the saving vaccine turned out to be better for some uses and so on. But like the key thing is that they were very, very careful, even in the middle of a pandemic to try to get absolutely rock salt, solid, solid clinical evidence about the vaccine they were using, both, both the safety profiles and the, um, and the efficacy. Um, in this pandemic, it seemed like we were more panicked than we were during the polio pandemic. Um, we, we, uh, now, um, the data we had was not bad, actually, in some sense. Like this protection against, severe, uh, against symptomatic infection is a pretty important endpoint. But I think it was irresponsible on it, in December 2020 to try to think that it would stop transmission when we didn't know that it would um and that and it's it was irresponsible in december 2020 because it was outside of what the scientific evidence said um but then it was really irresponsible by july of 2021 when it was abundantly clear that that there was that heavily vaccinated countries were seeing big outbreaks it was too late at that point to take make that as as a safe assumption you could make it maybe make a defensible assumption in december of 2020 that, but not by by July of 2021, and we doubled down on vaccine mandates. We have doubled down on vaccine passports and and vaccine vac- and pressure to vaccinate, which I think has had a really negative consequence on vaccine uh, on on the confidence that people have in vaccines. Um, even though the the scientific evidence by July of 2021 was so clear that it does not stop tra- that, that the vaccine doesn't stop transmission. Uh, and so 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 I think that in terms of like the uncertainty, what you want to do is you want to, you want, there's always a balancing act, right? You have this major danger, major, major danger. Uh, There's this danger of floating of of this, of the, of the the disease floating around, but you also need to have some, uh, some adherence to basic scientific principles, or else you're going to end up having the public stop trusting you. which I think what's that happened during the pandemic. Um, As far as like what we learned about side effects, um, I think there's still more to learn, um, but but what we learned is already really interesting and important. So first of all, uh, it it's become very clear. Not It wasn't so clear in December, 2020, but it's become very clear now. And certainly I think by 2021, that this vaccine causes myocarditis in young men, heart, the inflammation of heart muscle in young men, um, 15 to 40. I don't know. You can pick some range that's lower than that and higher than that. It also causes it in women, but at much lower rates. I don't fully understand the mechanism of it. Uh, it might—it's—it's—it's—is its it's, it's, if it is, it is, it's probably the spike protein, the spike protein fragments, but it seems to cause it at higher rates than COVID infection does. Hmm. The same age groups. So if it's the spike. Okay, so that's
0: that's actually important. I, I just want to emphasize that. So it's true, it's true. That in young men, at least, the rates of myocarditis from the mRNA vaccines are higher than they are from getting COVID.
1: Yes. Um, Now, and of course, it doesn't prevent you from getting COVID. So, like people would say, like try to compare those two as if they were really important. But the 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 question is not actually the relative rates of those. You can't avoid getting COVID. At least the vaccine doesn't stop you from avoiding getting COVID. Doesn't stop you from getting COVID. So the, the question is, should I get vaccinated to prevent myocarditis if I'm a young man? The answer is it doesn't do that. So now you're p- giving yourself two risks: the the myocarditis risk from, from the vaccine, the myocarditis from COVID. Doesn't doesn't protect you against that. Um so the overall risk of myocarditis if you're vaccinated in your young man is higher than if you're not vaccinated. Um, Interesting. So we've learned that. Um uh, uh, we, we've we learned also, there was just a, a study that was just published in early December out of an analysis done by the FDA with a group I actually have worked with in the past um, called the FDA Best. They, they What they do is they have data from Medicare and other healthcare claims records where they track people over time, um, over long periods of time, Medicare the whole rest of their life. Um, they They can match statistically people who were vaccinated and unvaccinated and then look at various outcomes of, of concern. What they concluded was that there is a elevated risk of pulmonary embolism for elderly people who take the mRNA vaccine. Published in Vaccines, public peer-reviewed, major peer-reviewed paper uh, out of the FDA. And this was just published in December 2021, 2022. Um, there's reports out of Israel that suggest there's higher rates of of some, of some some cardiac events um there was a very careful reanalysis of the of the of the randomized data randomized studies by uh by a group that includes a, one of the senior editors of the BMJ uh uh peter doshi and, and this is the, the lead author I think, is joe fryman um what they what they did is they they looked at reports of severe adverse events in the in the in the in the in the uh, mRNA trials um, based on a uh, the, based on a list of uh, that that was compiled by the WHO to say, okay, this may be associated with vaccines, these vaccines. And then they uh, they uh, for each serious adverse event, they would look at the the clinical context of this happening, this uh, the potential event happening, this event happening. And not knowing if the patient was in the placebo group or in the vaccine group, they would assign a jury of, 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 of docs to look at the, and say, is, is this likely vaccine associated? And they would vote. Um, Based on that analysis, they found that there was a 1 in 800 uh, risk of serious adverse events with the mRNA vaccines. Now the, the, uh, the problem was that they don't, they don't have like detailed patient information so they don't have age. They didn't, they're they're trying to like based on they just to have it based on what Pfizer has publicly released about these patients and the vaccine trial. So they're what they would like to be able to answer is is it is that risk higher for young people than for old people? We don't know that from the trial because that's not been that's not been analyzed. That I think that kind of methodology really is 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 really appropriate for, for asking these kind of questions. And I think Pfizer should release those data so that people can do those reanalyses. Um uh, so so we've learned a lot. The vaccines the vaccines are not benign. Uh and one there's one possibility, which may be it's I mean, you know, the, the way the mRNA technology works, uh, if they just use straight, unmodified mRNA, um, you'd actually induce a pretty severe immune reaction. There, there's a there's a big technological advance that happened in order to for this mRNA technology to work, which is they they replaced um one of the base pairs of the of the of the mRNA with this with this the pseudo uridine, which yeah. reduces the immunogenicity of the the mRNA itself. Uh, I mean, I think that it's made it possible. I by like you was quite excited by the mRNA vaccine technology when I first heard about it because for exactly the same reason as you, because you know, because then we could maybe we could use it to like get a vaccine against malaria, against a whole host of diseases that we really have not made a ton of progress against. And we could experiment rapidly with just changing the sequence but I think it's more complicated than that uh, and this is I'm not about again I'm not not going to apologize again for not for, for talking outside my area I just this is stuff I read not 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 my training but it it, it seems to me that um it's not simple as simple as just programming a computer and you just, you run it and you have hardware there's some interesting and important interactions that we don't anticipate like I don't think anyone would have anticipated. The high rates of mRNA uh, this this mRNA vaccine causes myocarditis in young men. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know why it's higher in young men than in young women. I, I mean I'm, I'd be open to hearing suggestions and, and hypotheses, but that's something I didn't anticipate. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone I saw anyone anticipate before it came out. There's some complications around this because we don't fully understand the biology around it, and just changing the the sequence that we put into the heart of the mRNA vaccine that we're using. May actually have other biological effects that we don't anticipate. Mm-hmm. The 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 lipid nanoparticles can cause problem. May potentially can cause problems. The the ones that they encase them, um, and who knows? Like there's a, there's a lot of things that you can only learn, unfortunately, by doing clinical experiments on actual people. Um, the issue is should we should we put these these kinds of technologies out at scale without having done smaller scale experiments? I think it's irresponsible even in the midst of a pandemic. I mean in the, in the in the context of the of the polio uh pandemic in 1954 we we slowed down and ran a very large scale trial before we before we put it out to the, all of the world's kids. Um we have to be careful. We have to we don't we shouldn't just because we are we've had a lot of scientific success have any hubris around this. We still have to do the work very carefully to make sure that we're there, unanticipated things we're, we're not seeing, and, we, and take those things seriously. But that's what vaccine safety work is about, right? Is to is to try to find those things so uh, so that we we uh, improve the safety of the vaccines that are out there. Um, so I, I think um, uh, it's it's I guess I mean it's it's one level, of question, other level of it's a scientific question. As another level, it's it's a policy and philosophical question: how mm-hmm. much risk are we willing to take at population scale?
0: Yeah, what's um. You know, what's your reaction to the fact that you know these vaccines were very rapidly um, produced and distributed initially, and you know, in my mind, you know, one of the whole points of you know one of the whole you know potential upsides of using these so-called programmable mRNA vaccines is is as we mentioned before the the ability for rapid iteration. You know, if a new variant comes out, you can update your sequence. Um, and get a new version that's specific to the new or emerging variant. Um, and yet, as we've had variant after variant come out, um, they haven't come out with new versions of the mRNA vaccines as fast as I would have expected. Is is that surprising to you? Do you know why that is?
1: Uh, I mean, uh, I, I think the problem is like you you can't, <laughs> like you, you still have to test it in humans, right? So like, you know, I, I saw the FDA approve the BA45 vaccine. mm mm-hmm. In, in, uh, on the basis of mouse evidence and with, with a, with a surrogate endpoint of, 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 of boosting antibody production. They're specific to BA A45.
0: Was this, That's, was this the uh, kind of infamous study that was in six mice?
1: Yeah. I was like, what is it, eight mice or whatever. I mean, I actually had 30 mice, but eight were assigned to the what I could, there's some, but the point is there's no humans in the study, Nick. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, it's, it's, it is, uh, it's, I think it's just irresponsible. Like you, it's a new product. It's not, you know, with with the um with the flu vaccine, there are there is mouse studies to to check for immunogenicity, but we actually have correlated with those mouse studies strong human evidence going back decades, and especially the safety profiles of those flu vaccines are pretty well understood, and they still we still track them to, to check for you know Guillain syndrome or whatnot. Um, uh, and it's and it's you know it's relative it's really low. Um, here you have a new technology where there's, there are safety signals that are concerning. It's it's brand new. We don't really know if we replace the mRNA code with with uh, will will it produce something different or not? Will it produce side effects or not that we didn't expect and so on? We don't know. We just can't assume that it that'll behave just like we do with the flu vaccine, which is a very 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 different platform and technology. So yeah, it's just I I think uh, I think it's just. Uh, we just went too fast with this. Um, there's another aspect of this, of this technology. I mean, I, I said, I was I said, like you, I was super excited about the, the the availability of this technology. It just never, never occurred. I mean, when, I, when the, this is probably the, the biggest mistake I made the whole pandemic was in March of 2020. I thought there was no way we could get a vaccine in a year. That just seemed outlandish. And I, so I was really pleasantly surprised when we had it in nine months. Um, the the problem there's another problem now, and this is, this is looking forward to other pan, future pandemics. Now that we have this technology, um, I I think um, there's we found that there's no guarantee that we can update it rapidly. There's no guarantee that it'll have the properties we expect it to have once we once we actually get it. Like for, for instance, we expect it to stop transmission, and it doesn't. Um, we 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 don't have. We don't have omniscience around it. We still have to do the experiments, right? But we but uh but what happens now is that people have overestimated the capacity of this technology to produce perfect vaccines at at scale rapidly. Um the next time there's a pandemic, we'll say, Well, why don't we lock down and we get the vaccine until we get the uh, vaccine in three months? It it will this the availability of this technology will induce lockdowns that will end up causing the same catastrophic harm that they've had to poor people and, and, vul- and other vulnerable people to children worldwide in the hopes of getting a vaccine rapidly out that will, for which we have absolutely no guarantee that it'll perform in the way expected for them that, that there that would with no guarantee they won't have side effects that we don't anticipate um, this this vaccine technology is a is, is a real advance but if we treat it the same way we treat other Uh, other vaccine technologies. You need to have clinical data, high quality clinical data for at least some extended period of time before you can do it at scale. And it should not be an excuse to lock down until, uh, you know, like I think a lot of people, or some people at least, thought about the the availability of the vaccines as a way out of the lockdowns in 2020. I think linking lockdowns to the availability of vaccines is an enormous mistake. I think it uh, it, uh, will end up making us think that the lockdowns are less harmful than they actually are or more wise than they actually are yeah.
0: and and when you when we talk about the harm caused by the lockdown or the way that we are reacting from a pub, public policy perspective to a pandemic like this can you talk a little bit about how that's measured and, and maybe the concept of excess mortality like how do we actually tell that something like a lockdown or some other policy is is causing harm
1: well, so, so excess mortality is a, is an in- indirect measure of this because there's lots of things that can cause. So the way excess mortality is, is measured is um, you look at mortality rates for different age groups, for instance, um, in previous years, in this case before the pandemic, so 2015 to 2019. Um, and then you look at mortality rates now and you compare them. In excess mortality. Now you can do age adjustments or other like technical aspects to it, but like the, that's the key idea. Um, and if you see higher mortality now for any cause ro- versus this for the same age group um, in, you know, 20, 2015 to 2019 or whatever, again, whatever time period you want, um, th- that suggests that something has gone on that has killed more people now than before. Now that's an ambiguous signal. It can, the, the deaths from that can come from COVID it can come from lockdowns it could even come from vaccine injuries it could come from other things that are happening that have nothing to do with covid right so it's it's a it's a signal that tells you something's wrong but doesn't tell you exactly why that thing is wrong um so uh there there's more direct things that you can look at that provide some indication although not a full accounting right so for instance the world bank and the, uh, the world food food uh, uh uh what's it called there's a there's a, there's a group in the in the world that, 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 that tracks hunger around the world um the world bank suggested that that the, the economic in early like april 2020 suggested the economic dislocation caused by the lockdowns you know supply chain disruptions disruptions in economic activity would lead to 100 million people 130 million people being thrown into poverty worldwide less than $2 a day of income or, more, uh, or less, $2 a day of income or less, as a consequence of the lockdowns. It turns out that that's something like 100 million people thrown into poverty. When you say supply chain disruptions, it's not benign. It means somebody at the bottom of the supply chain loses their job and they can't feed their family. They might be in some poor country, they can't feed their family. and they're, and And their family starves. In March of 2021, the UN estimated that t- that 230,000 children had died in South Asia alone as a consequence of the dislocation caused by the, the economic dislocations caused by the lockdowns and also uh, disruptions in, immun- in standard immunizations. Um, the 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 uh, the, the lockdowns prevented b- because we wanted to keep hospital systems open. We stopped people from getting. Basic screening measures, including basic cancer screening like uh, like breast cancer, colon cancer, people delayed. Now men and women are showing up with late stage cancer that should have been picked up earlier, and they're going to die from it. Um, another another thing which is less well known but it's really important: uh, the, the social science literature before the pandemic had very strongly documented the importance of schooling on the health of children after they after they after they graduate. Turns out that even small disruptions, short disruptions in schooling, a few months, can have long-term consequences on the health. Of, because what happens is those kids are less well educated, they are poorer, they are less healthy, and they live less long. They live less long than they otherwise would, just based on those disruptions alone. So, in um, there, like, there was a JAMA Pediatrics piece early in the pandemic that estimated that the spring disruptions of schooling in the United States. Would cost American school kids five and a half million life years in expectation over the over their lifetime. Um so these are like pieces of the puzzle. Uh the problem is like the lockdowns, the 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 the, the effects of them are so myriad, so multidimensional, that we're gonna be counting the harms for a very long time. There's so much harm that's linked to them that it's almost impossible to catalog them in, 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 in um in in, in its whole. But the broad pictures are absolutely shocking and absolutely overwhelming. I think every poor person on the face of this earth was harmed by these lockdowns in some way or other. Children, vulnerable people, uh, and, and uh, of the 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 effect will be not just in terms of, of the economic well-being of them, although that was devastating enough, but also in terms of the health, um, sy- both psychological and physical, of the entire population. Hmm.
0: Well, at this point of the conversation, um, you know, God help us. I want to talk about masks. (laughs) Um, you know, everyone's favorite subject, um, you know, obviously there's a wide range of opinions, expert opinions and non-expert opinions about masks. Um, very early in the pandemic, you know, a lot of people have forgotten this, you know, initially here in the U S at least, you know, a lot of experts and public health institutions were initially telling us actually don't, don't worry about masks. They're not that useful. Um, but then you know overnight at some point they said actually they are helpful we were just saying that so that we could conserve supplies for healthcare workers and then of course we went through various cycles of mask mandates and endless debates uh, on masking and and all of that you know now you know a lot of people experienced a lot of whiplash and anxiety around masks for all sorts of different reasons but today what can we say with confidence about the effectiveness of masks in preventing the spread of COVID for both regular cloth versus N95 masks?
1: Oh, okay, Nick, you want to get kicked off YouTube? I can tell. <laughs> uh, it's funny because, like, I the the one time I was kicked off YouTube was a was a roundtable with the Florida Governor DeSantis, Governor DeSantis, where he asked me about the efficacy of child masking, mandated child masking, in preventing disease. And I told them a fact, which is that there is no randomized evidence at all, zero randomized evidence that, that shows that they're not even conducted a randomized trial, uh, cluster randomized trial of masking in children, um, and that the that we had no low, high quality evidence at all to suggest masking would work to protect children. And that video, YouTube censored that video of a sitting governor asking scientific advisors about on a scientific question. So well, let's, let's do this with, you know. I'll I'll, I'll 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 try not to get you kicked off nick but I, but i'll we'll, we'll, uh, just I'll, you know
0: say what what you know to be true
1: um uh, so i think the evidence on masking before the pandemic was overwhelming a number of high quality randomized cluster studies cluster studies that um that found that masking were, was ineffective in protecting people against highly infectious respiratory diseases like the flu and the settings were included, like hospital settings, and that included different types of masks. Um, there's some evidence that N95 masks fitted before, well, by, and worn by trained professionals, where they were like you know changed, you know when when they got wet and things like that. Um, that might work to some degree, but even those, there was like mixed evidence um, in population settings. I don't think there was a single one that actually had it had a very substantial effect on transmission of the flu. This was the basis. And these were randomized studies. Like you know, like there was one study, I, I, I'm not even sure how they like managed this, but they they uh, on the Muslim Hajj, they the, the the researchers randomized the tents that people stayed in on you know this pilgrimage to the to Mecca that people make, um they randomized the tents. Well some tent got the mass other tent didn't get the mass and there was no difference in the flu rates among the two tents. Now the, the uptake was like fifty percent or something in the in the the, the, the but but you know like you force people to try to get masks you won't not necessarily get perfect uptake. Um, so the point is that the evidence on masks did never showed, but when we entered the pandemic, that they worked in co- community settings, not cloth masks, not not surgical masks, nothing. Um, this was the basis for why masks were not recommended early in the pandemic for the population at large. Because that's what the pre-existing high-quality evidence showed. Um, I don't know why public health made that switch, but sometime in March, April, April, twenty twenty, public health decided that ma- that ma- masking in the general population was the, was the way to go. Um, I think there was a mistake, partly based on how the trend, the, 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 how people thought transmission worked. People thought transmission worked by droplet spread. Droplets are like rain. Aerosols are like are like clouds, right? So dro- like I think masks can actually block droplets. If you sneeze into a mask, there's gonna be many, fewer droplets that are gonna come out than if you don't have a mask. Um, and so people thought, okay, well, physically it should make some sense that it should work, even though there was this long literature before the pandemic that's just that suggested they don't work very well, even for the flu. Um, and
0: so, so, so to use your analogy, I like what you just said. So, uh, droplets are like rain, aerosols are like clouds. Is the idea here that simply because we're talking about aerosolized particles as as the mode of transmission here, that those aerosols literally just go through the mask? The holes are just not small enough to to trap them.
1: Yeah, So not like for, even forget about the, the the mask itself. When you wear a mask and your glasses get fogged up, that's aerosols escaping out the hole, the big mm. fat hole that's right here or on the side or underneath um, you have to actually have it in order to have to block. That is really hard. You have to shave. You can't have a beard and actually have a of close fit. You, you can't, you have to, you have to leave a line. It's uncomfortable mm-hmm. where if you're actually fitted, wearing a fitted N95 respirator properly. And if it gets wet, then um, the block, the, the way the N95 respirators work, it's not actually a physical block. You still have holes. It's, it's, there's an electrostatic charge that reduces the transmission of even smaller, very small particles through it. Um, but, but when it gets wet, that sort of that sort of like capacity to block even small particles goes away. Um, and so that's why you have to replace it when it's wet. I mean, it's it's tra- being trained to wear an N95 is like it's a you, know, you have to do fit testing. It's it's a complicated thing if you ever had to go through it um to tell the public at large to wear it without any of the fit testing it just means the aerosols are escaping out out the sides i see so uh, i just i I think um so this was vastly oversold i think at least initially on a mistaken belief that it was mostly droplets that were spreading the disease and and then uh, then somehow it just it didn't matter what the evidence was like there was a, that there was that Danish study that looked at mask wearing to and in terms of protection of of yourself, right? They randomly assigned surgical masks to one group and no surgical mask to another group, and there was hardly any difference in the rates at which they that they got COVID. I mean, I think it was statistically, I don't remember, I think it was like statistically insignificant, and the and the actual absolute risk reduction was almost nothing from wearing surgical masks. There was a Bangladesh mass study where they randomly assigned different villages. Now that study, again, didn't. none of these studies had kids in it. So like masking children is based on no randomized evidence, but that study found is that um, the cloth mass had no statistically significant effect. And the effect size was tiny. The, 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 uh, the uh, surgical mass had a statistically significant effect, but the effect, the effect size was like not 9% of efficacy in the in the in in terms of like the reduction of, of risk with a confidence interval from zero to 18. Um there've been some reanalyses of those data uh that, that suggest that even the statistical significance was overstated. Um and then there's just a, 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 a there was just a recent study um out of um where is it? I'm like, like go and see an album, Nick. I'm sorry. There's, 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 there's another recent randomized study where they compared N95 masks to, to uh, surgical masks and found no difference in clin- in, in hospital settings hmm. for spread of COVID. So the, the, the pre-existing mask literature, the randomized mask literature on the flu found no, no effect. The existing mask literature on COVID randomized mask literature finds little to no effect, very little efficacy. Now, if you have a low efficacy thing, let, let's take it at face value and say it's not zero. Let's say it's some mm-hmm. efficacy. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is recommending at scale is that you have this, you have this like uh, this danger that happens that when, like, let's say, uh, let's say someone's high risk of dying if they get COVID, they wear a low efficacy device, that, and they take more risk than they otherwise would. So even though physically the mask is is reducing, it has some efficacy. You you increase the exposure time, yeah, and so you actually made things worse.
0: Yeah, it's sort of like uh, it reminds me of the phenomenon of uh, you know people buy like you know big trucks or SUVs, but then they become riskier drivers because they feel like they're safer in that kind of thing. It's the same psychologically. It's the same type of phenomenon, I guess.
1: Exactly. And early early days, we said wear a cloth mask and go out then are I mean you're, you' say like your my mask protects you your mask protects me but really people felt safe wearing a cloth mask and so they went out um sometimes some even some high risk people went out the, nothing it indicates the cloth mask works at all. We probably killed people with those recommendations um so so you, you have like I mean just it's it, and now uh, it's and if you look at like the mask mandates, you compare places that have them and don't have them there are these like low quality observational studies uh that 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 the cdc keeps publishing that show that 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 mass mandates worked in some places but then when you extend the period out outside of just the narrow window the cdc looks at it in or you introduce a control group uh or you or you or you like do a more systematic analysis of lots and lots of areas that some of which imposed or didn't impose them There's no evidence that I've seen that that indicates those mandates did anything to actually fundamentally alter disease transmission or the the path of the disease. The disease comes and goes as it will. Um, So I I think masking has been a complete disaster for the public health and scientific community. We've vastly overstated the data that there are. Uh, In many cases, completely... uh, 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 not just overstated, but like completely, completely misrepresented the data that there are. Ignored high quality data, emphasized low quality data, um, and as a result, and 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 worse is, it's created these weird political divisions. We we've turned mask wearing into a signal of your of how empathic you are. Like we moralize this 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 piece of cloth. You wear it, you're a good guy. You don't wear it, you're a bad guy. Uh, and then the reaction to it is like, you know, screw you! I'm not going to follow your rules. Um, it's 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 essentially created this social division, moralization of this thing, which never should have happened for a low efficacy for, for 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 a device that has very low efficacy against the thing we want to prevent. It may even cause more harm than good. Um, it's shocking to watch to watch this happen in real time. It-
0: yeah. and all of this gets into you know how all of this feeds into the uh crisis of trust basically that we're in with respect to the public and our public health and our, and our government institutions and you know all of the all of the big institutions of, of society um, there's people who will you know believe what our public health institutions will say without thinking there's people who will ne- never believe anything they say without thinking and everything in between there's sort of no solidarity no good solidarity in the population of, you know, having sort of a a healthy, reasonable relationship with our institutions and being able to trust what they're saying and why. And I guess I want to ask you about sort of expertise and credentials and, and public trust and the relationship between the public and our community of experts in in you know various institutions. So you know you're a professor at Stanford University, very famous university. You've got an MD, you've got a PhD, you've got all these credentials. You're officially an expert um, in in some in some fields. Um, you know, given your status and and the credentials you have, given the way things have gone over the course of the pandemic and just over the course of your life and, and career. How have you sort of seen the relationship between credentials and expertise, and how and why uh, regular people trust or place trust in authority figures with those credentials? How has all of that evolved over time, and what and what are your thoughts on what's driving those changes?
1: Well, I, I mean, I personally, I don't, I, I've never cared about my credentials all that much. Like, I if I if I have data and and logic and reasoning to persuade you, then that's one thing. The fact that I'm at Stanford on top of that should add nothing as far mm. as I'm concerned to that. Um, it, w- but I mean, in what, what I've seen during the pandemic has just been, this almost this like, this like guru worship, right? You find your guru and you, you, you listen to them no matter what, even if it's, you know, uh, so- someone who doesn't really pre- presenting solid data. Um, uh, at, yeah. At the worst, I think is, is the example, of this is Tony Fauci. Uh, he, he, famously gave an interview where he, he said something very close to if you question me you're not simply questioning a man you are questioning science itself if you think about what that means he essentially has created this like this idea of science as this like clerisy with with tony fauci as the high pope um it's like an inversion of what happened in the in the in the uh, in the enlightenment right where where the, the whole purpose of the enlightenment was to say look it doesn't matter what your credentials are if you have, if you see Jupiter move. It moved, um, you know. Um, so I, I just, I just don't. I, I mean, I think that 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 the, this credential is not that. It, it's not true that the Enlightenment had, had eradicated credentialism. Uh, and science itself is so large and complicated that it al- it al- always is going to depend on trust to, to some extent and markers of trust to, to some extent. I can't, you know, I even in this conversation, uh, I've made some speculation in areas I don't have. Like a, a very strong expertise. I think it's fine. There's, I mean, I'm, I think I'm allowed to do that. It's fun. Um, but I've I've told you a caveat based on like, I, you know, this is this is not an area where that's that's my directly mine. I think everyone should be able to participate in science. Um, but also everyone should be checked. Uh there is no high pope of science. There is no clarity in science. And I think this move to like, uh, make credentials as like you are you, you know, like the whole whole, whole pandemic the, the thing you'd hear and when and almost anyone would speak up that wasn't an epidemiologist is are you an epidemiologist as if somehow epidemiologists automatically have the credentials or the, the knowledge and the wisdom to to order all of society. Um, science invo- involves even people who have no credentials being able to say look, this is wrong and if they if they're right that it's wrong, then we should listen to them. Um, uh, I have to say, like the the, the so the, the I wrote this document called the Great Barrington Declaration, where there was a you know where we argued that because of this high steep grading in the age age, age uh, from risk of disease, um, do focus protection for older people. Uh, when we wrote that document, um, they, I I signed it with Martin Kulldorff of of, Har- of Harvard and and, and Group of Oxford, so Stanford, Harvard, Oxford that got a lot of attention because it was Stanford Harvard Oxford right um but the idea is, itself is a thing that should have got got attention i mean the idea is, is the old pandemic plan that's really the key thing it's 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 a century of wisdom distilled down to a page of focus protection on vulnerable people don't do don't disrupt the lives of people that aren't vulnerable so much because you'll end up causing more harm than good that wisdom was a century of of respiratory virus pandemic management, successful respiratory virus pandemic management, oh, somewhat successful respiratory virus pandemic management. Um, four days after he wrote it, Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, wrote to Tony Fauci, calling the three of us fringe epidemiologists, which is a fantastic term that I'm going to go to put on my my, my tombstone. Um, and they call for devastating takedown. Um, and that rather than arguing against the facts that we were arguing for on scientific basis, maybe we're wrong, maybe we're right, uh, he wanted a personal attack on us, in fact. He attacked us personally, fringe epidemiologists. He viewed the Great branch Declaration as a challenge to his authority rather than to his arguments. That's the reason for what he did. He, they wanted, he and Francis Collins and Tony Fauci wanted to create this illusion there was a consensus a scientific consensus in favor of the lockdowns that they've been supporting that wasn't true then it wasn't it's not true now either uh, but it certainly wasn't true then it was an illusion of consensus they wanted to create because they wanted to act like high popes of science and the idea of the devastating takedown was essentially to say look we we have more authority than they do even though they're at Stanford Harvard Oxford um, we're we're the where the where the where the, we're the um, Uh, that we we are the knowledge, the ones who know that is not how science works, Nick.
0: And this is, I guess this is the distinction between science as a process versus the science with a capital S that people have been making recently.
1: Yeah, exactly. Science is a human thing. It's a conversation between people. It, uh, it, it, it's not infallible. Um, What it is, is uh, a fantastic, the only sort of the best way we know as humans to, 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 to learn about the material world uh, where we check ourselves and you and you and I, we have some disagreement about some scientific idea. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're, if you're, uh, if you're a Stanford professor or not, you, the day the you run an experiment, it favors you, Nick, you're right. I'm wrong. That's the way it works. That's how, that's how science works. And I'll buy you a you know dinner and then we'll have another argument and then the next, do the next experiment. Maybe I'll be right the next time. Um, that's that's the right way to think about science unfortunately i think the social uh the social sort of like significance of science has turned into this like source of, tr- of oracular truth during the pandemic and that is dangerous for science it's dangerous for uh public health and it's dangerous for po- for, uh, for uh for uh for for public policy
0: and um so i guess on on this general subject of you know being able to debate and talk about things openly and and discuss things at the level of ideas rather than just deferring to uh, who said them and you know what official position they're in. Um, I like what you said earlier on you know evaluating your ideas rather than uh, you know the fact that you're at Stanford that that should add add nothing to to the veracity of your claims. Um, you know, uh, something that you uh, got a lot of attention for recently was you were named, uh, you were in the the so-called Twitter files, uh, one of the episodes of the Twitter files, because, you know, for uh, a period of time, I'll let you uh, discuss how long this was and what exactly happened. I don't remember all the details, but your account specifically was suppressed on Twitter in different ways. So can you talk a little bit about what, what was uncovered there recently or, or made public at least? And, you know, why was that happening? And what exactly, how, how exactly was your account being suppressed?
1: So, uh, so, 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 Barry Weiss is a fantastic reporter. Uh, she, she got invited by Elon Musk to look into the Twitter files to Twitter's files regarding, um, uh, regard, regarding its censorship efforts during the pandemic. Um, and, uh, uh and, and along with other topics, um, there's, so, uh, what I, what I learned Nick is that at Twitter, there are, various tools that you can use to like look to see if people have have had people like the status that people have for their for their their files for their for their for their account um so for instance um uh my account if you look at my my the the, their, 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 the tool that they have has a little yellow badge that says i'm on a trends blacklist trends blacklist um, if you click into those things, you can then see, uh, I actually, Elon invited me to go to Twitter. So this is why I actually got to see my own thing. Hmm. Um, uh, if you click in, you can see the history of that trends blacklist. Now, what is a trends blacklist? A trends blacklist is it says that, uh, that my tweets, you know, my, the uh, can go and other people that follow me can see them, but the, but they will never get on this like trending. Kind of status, so that yeah. people outside of my my uh, my my own network can see. It'll never show up in other people's things, saying, "Oh, a, 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 you know, other people like like this kind of tweet," right? Or 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 trending, so that a very large fraction of the Twitter uh, Twitter sphere sees it. And and what? Why were
0: you designated as uh, uh, being blacklisted?
1: So I, d- I don't know that for certain. What I do know is. Two things. One is that, uh, is that I was put on that trends blacklist the day I joined Twitter in August of 2021, hmm. um, uh, which is which is interesting. That day I published a link to the Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, that was the, the the most important thing I published. I, I put on Twitter that day. And then the second thing I know is that, and this is based on a lawsuit that I'm I'm a, 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 a participating in against the Biden administration by the Missouri and Louisiana Attorney General's Office and the new Civil Liberties Alliance. Um, it's a First Amendment lawsuit. What we know from that lawsuit is that there were a dozen federal agencies cooperating closely together at, with to provide instructions in regular contact with big tech, including Twitter. And the content of that, uh, th- those instructions included what to censor, what ideas to censor in the name of censoring misinformation and who to censor the the in in twitter in the twitter headquarters what i could see in the tool was that there were multiple people that complained about me the day i joined twitter and that led to the trans blacklist it didn't say who complained it didn't exactly talk about the process that twitter used to decide that i deserved to be on this trans blacklist but it was um it seems very likely just connecting the dots that it that there were that there was a uh, that federal agencies potentially even including the NIH um, or the CDC, told Twitter about, if not me in particular, the Great Barrington Declaration, the idea of focused protection or something like that. Uh, I also found, I searched on Martin Kulldorff, who's the, the Harvard professor that signed the Great branch or co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration. He was actually put on a trends blacklist for, for a while in July of 2020. And when I asked him what was happening then on Twitter, he said that he was he was posting links to some Swedish data that suggested that opening schools was not harmful to kids or particularly to teachers either Mm. over and over and over again. He said he was most active that during that short, those few short months in July, 2020 that's when he was most active on Twitter posting that because he wanted to help tell people that the scientific evidence did not favor opening schools. And then he was put on a trans blacklist for that. Um, He actually wasn't on a current trans blacklist, although he was three times in 2022, was put on a trans blacklist. Um, I, I still don't know fully the process, but it seems really clear that Twitter could not have been doing this just simply on their own. They just don't have the expertise or, or the, or the, frankly, the, the, the motive. The reason they did this is because they were encouraged by the government to do so.
0: Um, and so how long are you at Twitter, um, with, with Elon and, and the employees there?
1: Oh, that was fun. It was, I was there. I like arrived at like 3 PM and then I left around nine, uh, i talked to elon for an hour he was very generous with his time um and uh actually i, I talked about, uh, with he, uh, to some twitter em- employees many of several of whom were pulled over from tesla they were there it's like saturday night they they told me that they'd be there until three that elon was there until three and then at night that, that like it was it was just they were like they actually looked like they were having fun um <laughs> It was like the big it's like you walk in there's this like five star hotel that's like completely empty mm-hmm. there's just all these engineers huddled around trying to like fix things.
0: <laughs> Interesting. What um you know, you were only with him for an hour. It's not like you you know the guy super well, but given the acquisition of Twitter and the changes that that have happened since um Elon Musk took over, given, you know, what you discovered about yourself in the Twitter files release, given your short interaction with him there, What's your general impression of him? Is he, you know, what he is he similar to the persona that he puts out there? Is he actually uh sort of a the free speech uh crusader that um he's at least marketing himself to be? Uh is there some kind of intergalactic 5D chess going on where there's much more than meets the eye? Like like what did you make of him compared to his public
1: persona? I mean, I actually at first uh, I w- I was actually really impressed by him, Nick. I mean, I you know, and I I think um he made a joke about uh uh, about you know he spent 44 billion dollars to buy Twitter and he, he made a joke well look I could have bought a I could have bought a bought a a, a nice island for for, for the same <laughs> same money and, and the reason he bought Twitter he told me was because he is absolutely incensed by the censorship and that that he views that censorship by Twitter as incredibly damaging for our civilization that's what motivated it I I was actually it, like i wanted to know if i could share the data, the information i've been getting from the twitter engineers about my my blacklist and so on who asked him if i could and i and i pointed out that look i, I mean, i'm not going to sue because i think i'm i fully support what twitter 2.0 is doing in, in revealing this information i think it's very healthy for the public to know what happened um and and so uh, but uh, but there were there are a lot of things that potentially could lead to lawsuits he said look I, he hates uh the idea of wasting his time sitting in depositions but if that's what it took to like uh to, to, to restore free speech to the world, then it's worth it. Um, I really think he's motivated by by these these free now, you know, there's been like complications with like uh someone doxed doxed his like where his family was or something and then a whole bunch of journalists uh that he's that, that he that he suspended and let back on. So there's there's like complications. Um free speech doesn't mean to me you let every th- single thing go. If you're like threatening somebody, obviously that's not that's not free speech. That's like that's a that's a direct threat. Or, or you know, but 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 uh, but as a broadly speaking, that's his goal. That's the goal. I thought he could that that he told me he had. And I believe him. He wanted to restore the ability for people to disagree with each other, even on positions where the government was saying this is misinformation um, on Twitter. And I think that's that's exactly what he's done. And and actually the other half of it is like, I, I think he actually is against lockdowns and has been for the whole pandemic. Um, uh, that, that became clear when I, when we talked about the harms of the lockdowns, some of the stuff we discussed, I told him uh, as well there. And I, I mean, he, I think he's sincerely uh, uh, offended by the idea that lockdowns have harmed so many people. And that if we'd had a free discussion, maybe they wouldn't have happened.
0: Hmm. In uh in the wake of of the whole public health crisis that that we've been living through, um, and the sort of socio cultural volatility that that we have right now around that, and how many mixed feelings there are, um, and different people believing different things, and you know, and with with people like Anthony Fauci retiring soon, um, sort of with all of that stuff swirling, what are your hopes and predictions about how public health governance in the U.S. evolves in the coming
1: years? well I see one of two directions like right now the the public confidence in public health is as low as I've ever seen it um and partly it and partly it's almost entirely the fault of public health uh pu- public health uh has taken on positions that are against what the scientific evidence is saying that automatically is going to cause a lot of a lot of like unhappy even if 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 the scientific evidence was saying um in in favor of what uh like say mass mandates or or vaccine mandates, or whatever they weren't, but like if they were, even then they would be controversial, right? Because you're asking, pe- forcing people to do at risk of their jobs things that they don't want to do, or that they view as potentially harmful to their kids or whatnot. Um, so, but but the fact that it's based on on not on scientific evidence, but on on like extrapolations, on 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 ideas that 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 aren't particularly supportable given the evidence that makes people really distrustful of science of, of, of both science scientists and all particularly public health um the other aspect of this is politicization right so this is a fact like 99 percent of public health practitioners and officials in the united states are on the left a lot of people on the right feel like their their ideas are not represented respected by public health professionals um now, that may be just perception or fact. I think it's fact, but like that. But, 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 but let's say even it's just perception. That's a disaster for public health. Public health is not political in, in the sense that of a politician wins 50% plus one and you know, now you're a successful politician. Public health has to win over 90 95% of the people for it to be effective. If it only wins over 40% of the people it's not effective. In fact, it's an abject failure. Even if it wins 50 plus one, it's an abject failure. Even if it wins 60% it's an abject failure. Um, Public health has acted far outside of uh, of its highest ethical norms. And as a result, a very large number of people no longer trust it. So in order to fix that, you can't just do band-aids. You actually have to fundamentally transform public health. So that's a very different kind of, you have to reestablish it with a with a focus and a mission statement that that has science at its core the uh, ethical treatment of people at its core and then you have to have reforms that of structures that that put you know essentially like checks and balances so this kind of thing doesn't happen again Uh, it's not enough to say sorry you actually have to like get the get the uh the, the 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 processes in place so that uh so that you know uh if if uh if people are going to propose, say, go around saying, I am the science, someone else is there to check them. Um, So whether public health can recover from this depends a lot on what public health does. If it just keeps going the way it has, pretending as if it did everything right during the pandemic or only a minor, minor problem here and there, uh, it will never be effective again. And every time it it tries to do something substantive, it'll be opposed. Um, On the other hand, if it, if, the leaders of public health i think the leadership needs to change but with the new leaders of public health whoever they are um uh work to make sure that uh, that the these the the processes and internal structures of public health are reformed so the there's better checks and balances better grounding in ethics better grounding in science um and then t- then show the public what those are involve the public in those decisions then we have some chance
0: when you say involve the public in those decisions what exactly
1: do you mean I mean, like, for instance, uh, public health, local public health directors, right? Um, county directors have, it treme- turns out, tremendous power in the United States to make decisions about the lives of people. Um, they're unelected. Maybe make those into elected bodies. Uh, pu- public health, uh, the CDC is, it, it looks, I mean, it's, it's very, very opaque to people. In it, Create a, a citizen participation group or something. Uh, allow journalists in the it, to be embedded inside the cdc don't don't uh, uh the, the nih um ostensibly should be it's a scientific agency it should be very open to the public but it redacts huge fractions of these foia documents are redacted it's not national security and yet they're redacted um you have to make the actions of public health agencies completely transparent to the public uh i mean for instance it would make it make it so that you could never tell a noble lie again you can't you can't As a public health agency you say okay well i i'm going to try to tell you this i'll tell you this just to trick you and do something i want you to do even though it's not true that destroys trust if you have pub, the public uh involved so that, that those those kinds of actions are transparent they, they would never do it um public health has been entirely opaque entirely resistant to to feedback from the public um we we just I mean it just if it, if the public health doesn't involve the public is not the public isn't going to trust it. Uh, I, I I would contrast that with, for instance, Swedish public health has like ninety percent of the trust of the public, and so they never needed mandates. They never never used mandates for the COVID vaccines. Got pretty high uptake despite that, um, because public health trusts it. You you, you tr- tr- public, the public trusts public health. Um, mm-hmm. I, so I just I think is one of these things where like. We're in a very bad place in American public health. Uh, The public doesn't trust us as it shouldn't because we failed so badly. And uh, the leaders of public health are just doubling down, saying, uh, pretending as if nothing went wrong. The only problem was like those horrible Republicans caused all these problems. Um, You know, even the the those horrible Republicans, as you very sweet people, really do need to be able to trust public health for public health to work. It needs to, it's something very fundamental needs to change in American public health. The attitude of it is too imperious, too, too divorced from um, basic ethics and too divorced from the scientific data for it to be effective.
0: And, you know, as far as I can tell, it's not like public health was up in that 90 plus percent range and then COVID happened and deteriorated. It was already not there. Why do you think, you know, even pre COVID, it, it wasn't where it needs to be?
1: I mean I, I think there was all that, that I, I think that like the set of people that are in public health my, my observation like from working in public health is they they they've spent most of their lives frustrated that the good ideas they have do, do, don't seem to be accepted you know so like the obesity epidemic is a good 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 example of this right so like eat, eat well exercise really strong messages Um, On the other hand, there were like big successes. It just took a very long time. Like smoking rates in the United States have dropped very very sharply over a very long period of time. It took a a generation of public health efforts, slow, uh, frustrating um, public health efforts, but still effective because they built trust so that most people understand now that smoking is very, very bad for you. Um, But those efforts are not things that generate, you know, very rapid, rapid change. Those efforts are like community efforts where you reach out to, to groups. You get, you're not, you're not demonizing them because they smoke. You, you tell you you're educating them. You build trust over a long period of time. It's not directly political. Um, and, you know, even action against tobacco companies that turned out to be a bipartisan effort in the, in the nineties. Um, so you just, you just, you have to build coalitions. It's a slow thing. Um I, I think a lot of the reasons why public health was not trusted in the United States before is because it was it was seen as overly political and they were moving to more rapidly than they had before they built the, the kinds of coalitions in the public that would that would support them in the ideas they had. But an example of this is soda taxes. You know, it, it turned out to be a partisan thing that that a lot of people uh, really didn't want. And, and, part, and some some good reason, because like it's a very regressive tax. It ends up with poorer people that'll pay a higher fraction of their income paid for for, for for things like soda taxes. Um, you have to build coalitions and have ideas that understand who 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 the public health is for the people. If you're imperiously ruling over people, they're not gonna like you. <laughs> you have to like you have to be in partnership with them. Um and I think American public health for too long has not seen itself as partners of the people, but rather over the people trying to like direct it, and I think that's 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 a that's a fundamental problem that's cu- that led to the distress before the pandemic, and during the pandemic has just accelerated.
0: Hmm. You know, in the wake of you know everything that that we've lived through, um, seeing how you know the U.S. handled the pandemic, seeing how other countries handled the pandemic, you know, China, New Zealand, you mentioned Sweden you know, the, the full spectrum of what different countries did over the past two years, when you have the benefit of hindsight to look back at all of those things, um, you know, how, how have some of these different strategies played out? What are some of the, can you do like a compare and contrast some of the major differences between some of the the countries that handled this in different ways and and what you think worked best?
1: Sure. Uh, I mean, it's, com- it's complicated because the I don't think any country did it perfectly. Um, uh, uh, so, for instance, the Swedish response, which I admire in many ways, very early in the pandemic was a, was actually a failure. Like what happened was that they uh, y- they did not protect their nursing homes in Stockholm, especially very well, because they didn't employ the principle of focused protection. Uh, the idea would be to protect older people, right? That's who's who's most vulnerable. Um, so they made the same mistake that Andrew Cuomo made in New York, or in or we made in Michigan or Pennsylvania, where, where we sent COVID-infected patients back to nursing homes because the idea was protecting hospital systems rather than 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 people. Um, uh, on the other hand, the Swedish response generally has been quite good, apart from that the, that mistake, right? So, for instance, in in um, uh, the, the, the 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 there were some mass gathering limitations, but. Uh, most of what happened was was voluntary uh they were they were they would tell people you know here's who is a higher risk and so they organized these community responses where where like people neighbors would deliver groceries to older people living in their their neighborhood um they involved the community in mitigating the risk as best, much as possible they, they asked people to stay if you can stay home from work fine if you're not if you have to go to work you go to work um they didn't try to like imperiously close do shelter in place orders, mandatory business closures. And they never closed schools for kids at 15 and under, not once and children uh, during spring, 2020, no one died. No children died. um, Even though they didn't close schools during the height of the the worst part of the pandemic. Um, And the the teachers actually had lower death rates than the average of other workers in the population. Hmm. Uh, So it's just, it's one of these things where like the voluntary, uh, uh the way that they used public health was to was, was it was essentially like in cooperation with the public they they asked for voluntary cooperation with the public and they got it because they treated the public like adults um uh, uh, another example of 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 like i think a, a much more reasonable policy, like S- south korea was a little more reasonable uh, there's parts i didn't like i didn't like the overweening um contact tracing applications they, there was too much emphasis on that um, and, 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 uh, but like early in the pandemic, they didn't close businesses. They didn't close schools. They were, they were much more reasonable, again, trying to like involve the public in their, in their, in their response more, more effectively. Um, uh, the, 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 the Florida response I think was, was, was pretty good. I mean, the, 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 uh, the, the key thing there was focused protection of older people because they have such a large fraction of the older population. They do a lot to try to protect nursing homes. Um, you know not perfectly because it's this is so highly infectious it's hard to, hard to keep things out uh the and, and and especially but what i really liked was early when the vaccines came out in december 2020 governor desantis called me and asked me for advice about who to vaccinate and i suggest suggested prioritize older people and by the end of january 2021 every older every person in the nursing home in um in florida had had a vaccine offered to them I think every person over the age of 65 had, had a vaccine offered them very rapidly. Uh, my mom in living in LA didn't get her vaccine until like late March, 2021. Whereas every person in Florida had, had one offer, an older person had been offered the vaccine by you know January, 2021. Um, it It's peaked out lower than I w- would have hoped, but it's it's still the, that early vaccination effort focused on older people was the key thing. It was saved many lives, I think. Um, I, I, I think generally... Places that uh, you know, Scandinavia generally had much less emphasis on school closures. Europe generally has much less emphasis on school closures. The Chinese example is a is just a tragic example, right? This the zero COVID policy has devastated the lives of so many Chinese people, um, with vast human with human rights abuses on a vast scale. Um, and it failed. It failed to keep the, the disease out just as just as you predicted it would fail to keep the disease out um so uh it's i mean we're still gonna there's still a lot to learn from from the various countries uh i mean it's impossible in a short time to like cover cover it uh co- cover it in any detail and of course there's there's particulars about every single country that, that that which would leave it you know like i could think of a theoretical approach how you would manage it that's what the great branching declaration was in some in a short one-page document um uh but the perf- it's it's always going to be local right? Focus protections would always be a local thing. So people sometimes would say, well, how do you do focus protection? There's no one answer. It's going to be very different in South Central LA than it will be in Billings, Montana, than it'll be in in, in Stockholm. Uh, the key thing is the focus on protecting the most vulnerable. That's, that's the key idea. And then not harming the less vulnerable with draconian policies that don't actually stop the disease from spreading. I mean, those those would have been the two principles. And to the extent that countries follow those two principles, I think they did better.
0: Let's say there's um, another pandemic of some kind. And I guess the the question is, what would it look like in order to justify something like a full lockdown for some period of time, what would the infection fatality rate have to be? What kind of bug would we be talking about if, in you know, if it justified in your mind something like a lockdown?
1: I mean, I think the key thing is not the infection fatality rate, uh, but the but the the uh, predictors of of high risk, and then our knowledge of transmission. Right. So if you have a like this is an irony, right? So if if you have something that's very very highly transmissible, lockdown is not ever going to work. This is, this is just a useless, harmful thing. You can I can imagine something that has uh uh you are transmitted by uh by 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 mice or something that does not have very strong person to person transmission, where local lockdowns might be useful. So for instance, like I think um, in in the polio epidemic there'd be local closures of schools when the disease was being in high, high. I mean, and it'd be, it'd be very short duration, right? So it's, that's focused. It's children that are high risk. Um, you know, that, that the disease is being transmitted at high rates at, at right now. They didn't fully understand that it was fecal oral transmission then, um, but they would close schools to reduce the amount of, of spread of it. I could imagine a justification around that, but the school closures were very short and uh, short in duration. It wasn't, years uh so and, and they didn't they certainly didn't close schools in anticipation of a vaccine coming for years so so the, the the it has to be would have to be balanced i can't imagine a situation where i would ever support a full lockdown for an extended period of time because that would uh, all always lead to more harm than good like if you had a high ifr disease we're gonna ha- that it, it's gonna cause deaths it's unfortunate. There's nothing, and, and let's say we have no way of mitigating it, right? Uh, you have to accept that that's a fact. The key thing is who is most vulnerable, even even with a higher i you can still identify who's the most vulnerable, who's least vulnerable, and ask people who are the least vulnerable to to keep society going, because if you just shut them down also, you'll end up causing more harm than good. Uh, I, I just don't, I don't think a lockdown of the kind we use will should ever be used again. I frankly think it should be a dirty word. I think we should we should shudder and horror when we think about the the harms, the extent of harms it caused to the poor, the vulnerable of the world. I can't imagine a disease um, that could be mitigated by it, where whereby the marginal benefit from it would actually outweigh the marginal harm in terms of the lives lost from them.
0: <laughs> um, you know, given what we've been talking about and uh, how much of a bummer some of the stuff can be, uh, I want to ask you uh, more, more of a, a positive question, more of an open-ended question. W- what are you most hopeful or optimistic about in terms of the future of our society in general?
1: You know, I, I, despite the, the problems that we've seen with, with, uh, with the, the application of science, I actually think like the, there are a lot of good things. Like, it's amazing to me how the scientific community came together to try to address this problem. A lot of really talented people put their minds to this, and a lot of advances happen as a result, right? Uh, uh, I mean, the vaccines being one of them. Um, although I think, they were misused and caused a lot of, of, of social harm. Um, the the bio, biologically, I think, is is quite an achievement. Um, uh, so I th- I, f- I do think that that uh, I'm, I'm actually quite hopeful that if we can put the right structures in place, there's a lot of good that can come out of science. And uh, we've seen that during the pandemic. So so to me, that's 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 quite hopeful. The other thing I think um, has been healthy, although it's been painful, I think for scientists, is people people now have a much better understanding of what science actually is than they did. Like I, I think most people. Uh, who have been thinking about things now understand that science aren't scientists aren't gurus or not omniscient we don't know what we are are people that are just curious about how the material world functions and we are, we do experiments to try to understand it and it's slow and halting uh, the fact that people understand that science is this human thing it's not this like the spock-like thing and we like you know somehow uh, lear- learn about the world uh, just by just by our sheer intelligence it's it's uh, and that it's it's inaccessible to everybody now. I th- now people understand science affects them, and that people understand that, that that they can understand science, at least at some level, and maybe even participate in it. I'm I'm hoping that uh, this out of this pandemic will come a generation of of kids who are interested in science, and that science trans is transformed into a, something that's much less authoritarian and much more participatory, much more democratic, much more much more uh, uh, you know, so back at the roots of the enlightenment where, where it seemed like everyone, everyone on the face of the earth who wanted to participate in science could do so.
0: All right. Well, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I know you've been busy recently, so I appreciate you, uh, sitting down with me. Um, are there any final thoughts you want to leave people with or anything you want to reiterate from our discussion?
1: Uh, Nick, I'm really grateful to be able to talk with you. It's, I've been, I've been looking forward to it for a long while and, uh, Hope this doesn't take get taken down from YouTube. So, YouTube folks, we're 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 actually we're actually trying to be just do honest science here.
0: (laughs) All right, thanks, Jay. Take care. This episode is supported in part by The Amino Company. They specialize in making science-backed amino acid products that you can mix into any drink. Their products contain a mixture of essential amino acids, the building blocks of proteins in the body, as well as other nutrients including minerals like iron and electrolytes like potassium. Your body is constantly repairing damage and your muscles and tissues need the right mix of amino acids and nutrients to do this effectively. One thing I like about Amino Co. is they actually conduct clinical trials to determine what their products really do. They have a variety of formulations and Engineered for different purposes, and my personal favorite is one called Heal, which has been shown to be three times more efficient at triggering muscle growth and repair than other protein sources. It helps maintain healthy inflammation levels and preserve muscle mass during periods of inactivity. I mix this product into the water bottle I bring to the gym and consume it before, during, and after my workouts, and I have felt a noticeable difference in my performance during those workouts and my recovery times from soreness and fatigue afterwards. Their products are keto-friendly, soy-free, vegetarian or vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, so they are compatible. Compatible with almost any diet or lifestyle. You can support the podcast and try Heal or any of their other products by using the discount code MIND when you visit aminoco.com/mind. You will get 30% off your purchase. If you work out regularly or do intensive exercise, I recommend trying Aminoco's products. I get a lot of companies reaching out to me about advertising and I only end up using and liking a small percentage of the products that I see. So check out aminoco.com/mind and use the code MIND to try these products today for 30% off.